0: tonight as we celebrate the uh, worship God on this Good Friday. What a great occasion for the church to gather, to worship our God. Last night, I was preparing for this message and I was sitting outside enjoying the cool evening when I was joined by my son, McCoy. Now, as he was sitting out there with me, uh, his nine-year-old son he asked some really good questions about what I was doing, what I was caring for. And the most probing question that he asked, and of course the question that we're here today to discuss is why do we call it Good Friday? Why do we call this dark day where Jesus was crucified good? There's some irony in that question, isn't it? And irony, and we like irony. Uh, we, we appreciate irony. Irony is the the uh, most important devices that we get to see in drama, and entertainment, in the movies. I don't, uh some of our most favorite movies are, are movies that contain, or plays, are plays that contain dramatic, ironic moments. You think of the, the great play Romeo and Juliet, where so much of that story is driven by the audience knowing more than the characters themselves. And then the final act of that play, and Juliet is well on her way to carrying out her scheme to escape her parents so that she could be with Romeo, and she has faked her own death. We understand as the audience that Romeo doesn't know it. And this is in his anguish, thinking that, that Juliet is now gone. He begins to take actions that, action that cause that tragedy to unfold. Or we can think of a more contemporary version of that, Beauty and the Beast, where the audience knows that the Beast is actually a really handsome prince, but uh, Belle doesn't know that. And so much of the drama in that show is the drama of what will happen when Belle finds out who the Beast really is, a real the audience knows, but the character not That's how irony is often used in dramatic presentations, and I want you to keep that. Um, open mic. Mm-hmm. Open mic. Okay. I want you to keep that in mind as we consider the story of the cross. I want you to keep that feeling in right mind that you know more than the characters of the story, than the people in the story. And as we look at that today, as we, as we look into uh, John chapters 18 and 19 and
1: see some of the final moments before the
0: crucifixion, think about how you know more than those who are involved in the story itself. We're going to pick up after Jesus has been arrested. He has been tried already by the Jewish leaders, so so they have already tried him and they have already accused him and found him guilty of blasphemy, and now they're bringing him before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to put him to death. And we pick up in verse 28 where this is what we read. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I want you to notice in this passage our first taste of the irony of the story. Here come the Jewish religious leaders over to the house of Pilate and they won't even go in to the house of a Gentile lest they defile themselves for the Passover. And the moment Pilate steps out onto his porch, what do they do? They bear false witness against Christ. Their first act is an act of defiling themselves by breaking the law and accusing Jesus of evil when they know he has done no such thing. And it's even worse. The very reason why they are here is to break another commandment. They've just testified about themselves that they don't even have the right to kill, calling us back to mind the great commandment, Thou shalt not murder. And yet they're there on Pilate's porch to murder Christ. So here are these men so seemingly concerned about their own defilement and yet so eager to break God's law. But the story continues and it reads like this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And that very question that Pilate asks in that moment begs us to see the next glaring irony. As the reader will be aware just a few chapters before, Jesus has declared about himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And here Pilate asks this question And truth is standing before him. The whole key to understanding the world, the whole key to understanding why God created it all, is standing in his midst. And Pilate can't see it. But you can. You can see it. And the irony continues because in the very same verse, just the second half, we read this. And after he said this, He went back outside and told them, I find no guilt in him. So after asking the question, what is truth, Pilate walks back out and declares, I find no guilt in him. He declares the truth. And what an important moment. You know, I'm a lawyer. Most of you know that my day job is to go and practice law. And maybe you come up and ask me one day, Brent, what do you think is the most important moment in legal history? What is the most important and significant? What is the best moment in human history? What case was decided? What is the most important case? And I can answer you without hesitation. It's right here that Pilate, acting as the judge of the world versus Jesus Christ, declares in a great uh, judicial wisdom, I find no guilt in him. And as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't just declare it once and says it's done and change his mind later. Throughout the entire passage, he repeats it three times. to emphasize the significance of the guiltlessness of Jesus Christ. But after making this declaration, does He set Jesus free? He doesn't. He goes on and He goes back to the crowd and He says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? And they cry to Him, not this man. But Barabbas, now Barabbas was a robber, and there's so much irony in the story of Jesus and Barabbas, but the irony that I want you to find right now, that I want you to see for tonight is this. What we're about to see is this. With Barabbas, the guilty go free, and the innocent is punished. And as the reader, as the one who is looking at this story from the outside, you should realize that that is really a story, an element of the story that's about you. That in the story of the cross and what we're looking at here today, the innocent was punished so that the guilty could go free. The story continues. With Pilate, instead of letting Jesus go after declaring his innocence, we see the punishment of the innocent. And We read this, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again to them and said, See, I bring him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. There's number two. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And there's the third time. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? An authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin." So here we see Jesus brutally beaten, mercilessly mocked, and he's presented to the crowd in shame to make him appear as if he is even less than a man. Not only is he innocent, this is what Pilate is trying to show them, not only do I find no guilt in him, but what are you afraid of, him? He intends to diminish Jesus. It has the opposite effect. It has the opposite effect on the crowd because instead of seeing him as not a threat, it only feeds their lust for his crucifixion. But it has an opposite effect on us because when we see Jesus, we don't see lust of a man. We see the man, the perfect man, who acting in obedience to his father is in complete control. And as he's talking with Pilate, Pilate asks him, don't you know, Jesus, that I am the one with the authority here? Why don't you speak with me? And Jesus corrects him and says, you have no authority unless it has been given you from above. And again, as the reader, we know Jesus' words from several chapters before where he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. And the irony for the reader here in this scenario is to see that Jesus is the one in control. He's the one with the authority. And we behold that man. And then we conclude the story with this. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so they delivered him over to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate who wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Here we see Pilate's righteous decree come to its conclusion, right? He's sitting in the judgment seat and he says of, he's already said of Jesus, I find no guilt in him, and then on the judgment seat he says, behold your king. As I mentioned before, this is the greatest moment in human legal history. The truest judgment ever issued by a judge, and you would think that the result would be Jesus being set free and the decree going out that you should serve him because he's your king. But the greatest moment in legal history is followed by the worst moment in human legal history, where after Pilate is threatened by the crowd for saying, if you're a friend of his, you can't be a friend of Caesar's. And with Pilate being threatened, He issues a judgment of extreme injustice and he sends Jesus to be crucified on Golgotha, on Calvary's hill. But what I have written, I have written, he tells them, this is your king. I think to understand what's going on in the book of John, it's helpful to look back for just a moment. We'll we'll conclude here at Psalm 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, we read these words from the psalmist. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are plotting. The nations are raging. The nations are trying to subvert the true king and the true God. They want independence from their king. But we read this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, the nations rage. They want independence from God. But little do they know that God sits in heaven and laughs. And little do they know that all of their actions, though they are exposed for the evil that they are, serve all of God's intentions, all of his purposes. And so what's the conclusion? God has set his king on his holy hill. The king is on the cross. And in the the, the mind of of the human mind, in the human mind, in the human eye, from an earthly perspective, it looks like a defeat. But in heaven, God laughs because it's the coronation of his king. It's the moment when Christ defeats sin. It's the moment when Christ defeats death. And so Pilate's judgment isn't the last judgment. We conclude in verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, Pilate's judgment isn't the final judgment, there is a judge in heaven who can turn all of the wickedness of men into good, who sets right all the wicked judgments of earthly judges. And this day proves that. God made the darkest day in human history, the day of our freedom, the day where we were released from sin and released from death. And if that is true, because that is true, what is there to fear I've always loved Proverbs 31 In Proverbs 31 it describes the wife the excellent wife and I think I love it so much because of my excellent wife But Proverbs 31 is also a reflection of the church And I think one of my favorite verses that in Proverbs 31 is is in verse 25 where it says, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the days to come. And as the bride of Christ, as the church, we can laugh at the days to come. Not because they're not difficult, not because they're not serious, but because we take our God far more serious. And that's why we call This Friday, Good Friday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is Good Friday because you are good. This is Good Friday because you have been so good to us. We are sinners, and Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners. But in that betrayal, you saved us. In Jesus' death on the cross, you turned his death into life for us. Lord, we call this day a good day because we look forward to Easter and the resurrection of your Son. Thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son and for this good day. In your name we pray, amen.